we would love to just be blackety black black <laughs> because we'll be able to just be fully expressive about ourselves not how to diminish ourselves not how to tone ourselves down or water ourselves down or change our our our, our individuality in a way just to fit in or not draw attention to ourselves or not be pigeonholed in a certain way and then one of them turned around to me and said are you not angry with the germans oh my gosh and i was like um Okay, hello and welcome to the first episode of No Blacks, No Jews. This is a podcast that will be discussing all things to do with race and racism and everything in between in the UK. Uh, It's hosted by two people. I'm one of the two people. My name is Fumi Olutoye. And my name is Dan Friedman. So I'm someone who is from South London. I'm a black British woman. I am the child of a first-generation immigrant from Nigeria who came here in the late 80s. I'm very, very proud Brit, but I'm also a very proud Nigerian. And I'm a white British Jew. Uh, My great-grandparents came to the UK over a century ago, um, and I've, you know, lived all my life in the UK, and I have a very strong sense of British identity alongside a very strong sense of Jewish identity. Um, And I think Fumi and I are aware that both our communities are often at the center of various race storms, whether it's um, anti-Semitism or uh, racism towards black people. And we felt that there isn't actually much of a dialogue going on between our two communities where perhaps we have more in common uh, than we realise, and perhaps there's actually quite a lot we can learn from each other's experiences, where there are clear similarities, but also where there are clear differences. Yeah, definitely. And um, to quote the late MP Joe Cox, who said there are more things that bring us together um, than divide us. That's a paraphrase, by the way. But um, the sentiment is the same. I think it's it's important to have this dialogue because. I noticed that in America, race and racism are things that are very painful subjects, but they're constantly in the dialogues, constantly in mainstream media, constantly uh, conversations that happen in the home. But here in the UK, we seem to shy away from it. Um, But I think ever since George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, um, I think race and the conversation of race really has kind of bubbled up to the surface a lot more in the last couple of years um, for almost every community, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Black, whether you're Asian. Race and racism is something that people are starting to want to talk about more in the UK. And, um, you know, certainly when you look at um, a week that goes by in the world of news, um, so many stories have a racial element to them. And you look at the news from the last week or so, um, whether it's Jimmy Carr uh, making uh, an insensitive joke, uh, an offensive joke um, as part of his uh, Netflix comedy um, and their calls for his show to be pulled, um, or it's Whoopi Goldberg in America saying that Jews aren't a race, or it's um, you know a whole host of other um, uh, examples where there's a racial dynamic. Um, I I think that it's important we do have this conversation. And I think for me and I, we've known each other now for a long time. Hopefully we can have the conversation between us as friends, curious uh, to learn and in really good faith that perhaps 
it isn't possible to have all the time in, in, in the public sphere. I'm hopeful that I'm going to learn something because I know that I can ask for me the questions that I, I probably, you know, wouldn't be able to ask anyone else. Uh, and, and I'd like to offer you for me the same opportunity to sort of, you know, maybe offend me at times. Uh, and I know full well that, that that's not going to upset me because I know where you're coming from. And I know that you only mean, uh, you only mean love. Yeah. <laughs> um, there'll be a lot of parallels as well. There'll be differences, but there'll be parallels, which is, yeah. uh, I think everything in between those two kind of, um, those kind, those two kind of nuances is what I'm looking forward to exploring on this podcast as things go forward. Okay, all right. Well, that's the kind of introduction. That's a, a flavour of what you're going to get from us um, as this podcast gathers speed. One of the things that we um, discussed, you know, off air before this, where we we both sort of share this kind of feeling. When there's when there is one of these racial rows like emerging, this sense that you know here we go again, um, my people, my race, my background, my um, identity is is now the subject of kind of the debate that people are able to sort of wield and use politically um are in full discussion of and um you know apart from anything else serves only to remind me and i'm going to speak for myself i'm never going to speak for you on as part of this okay i'm always going to refer to, to myself and my own experience and i encourage sure. you to do the same what it's like for me is it's a kind of reminder that as much as I integrate and I fit in and I become a you know a British citizen I've been here for well over 100 years my family I'm still to some degree viewed by some people as other and all of that kind of historical trauma um, persecution oppression having to flee certain countries because of that persecution it all you know in a in a, in a you know I'm getting on my life I'm I'm you know doing all the things that you know, a nearly 40-year-old man with two kids does um, sort of, you know, in blissful like ignorance. And suddenly there's that, that kind of reminder that, hang on a second, that fear, that anxiety is like, oh, fucking hell. Like, you know, is it really safe here? Am I are my family really safe here? Am I really accepted? Am I other or am I, um, am I really welcome, basically? Yeah. And I, I, and, I, and, I, and I just wonder whether that's, just one of the things that we share when when that kind of familiar sort of build up of a story comes about and it's um you know something happens there's a lot of outrage there's calls for someone probably to resign or, or do whatever it is um but but fundamentally our very identity is at the heart of the debate yeah totally i totally 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 100 percent agree with that and you know similar to what you're saying these are things that are at the back of my mind they are nowadays more at the forefront of my mind because of various events happening so for example when i heard about the kind of um the bill that's going through parliament the nationality and borders bill that's just a prime example of how those of us who are dual nationals we can never really rest on our laurels. And that's not to say that we're going to go out and murder someone <laughs> and take advantage of that. Of course not. But it just shows that there's kind of like a second tier society where 
you're British, but you're not that British because actually we can deport you at any time because you were born somewhere else or you have a second nationality. So we can strip that, you strip your Britishness from you. And it's things like that that make me feel like, you know, I've grown up feeling like I was British. And yes, you know, I grew up in a sort of Nigerian home because my mum is Nigerian. But the fundamental thing is that I was British. I speak English. I grew up in a British school. I have British values. Um, but essentially, I'm constantly reminded I am other. And that's not just because in the way of people treating me, but literal laws that are being passed treat me as though I am other, potentially, if that makes sense. So it's just it just serves as a reminder when you do see things in the news where someone of your community does something and you just hope that your whole community is not tarred with the same brush, so to speak. Um, it just happens on so many levels. So yes, it can be as big as parliament where bills are being passed that can make you feel other, but it could be as, as something as small as, you know, something happened in your local area and then someone tweets about, oh, well, they're all the same, aren't they? It's just that constant reminder that, you know, as much as you may feel that you are British, other people think that you are other. So I totally 100% agree with that and resonate with that, really. So I think we've come nicely to um, something else that we discussed before, which is, you know, there is one thing that is fundamental that divides us. Um, and I'm talking about you and me here, which is that I've always had the, and I'm going to call it privilege, of being able to basically walk into white environments and fit in as another white person mm-hmm. um, where my Jewishness is not apparent, my otherness is not apparent. And of course, you know, you've never had that luxury. Yeah. If, if it's a luxury, let's just not even say it's a luxury. But what I'm saying is that I can hide and you can't hide. Mm-hmm. And so you have, a, you have, I imagine, a completely different sense of your identity as, as to mine in that I can almost be what's the word i can be inconspicuous inconspicuous i can be like the outsider on the inside whereas Mm. you know i can always i can i can always kind of fit to some degree in certain situations Mm. and sometimes i feel like i've been completely accepted or fully assimilated and maybe i have but sometimes, you know, there is, there is, um, I do experience racism where I feel like I'm in a really comfortable situation with people. And there is, you know, a comment made about uh, my Jewishness or that really? does other, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, and it's, and it's, or, or there's a joke that was made that, that maybe wouldn't be made if someone was aware that I was Jewish. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. something's going in a direction and I think, oh God, do they not realise that there's a Jewish person here, you know? Um, how does that make you feel knowing that, you know, so say for example, if you're in a kind of like, well, yeah, in an inconspicuous situation and you do hear say some hear someone say something that is kind of anti-Semitic in a way or in a blatant way, how does that make you feel? Do, do you kind of, do you react on the spot or do you kind of like swallow it and deal with it later? Or how, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, it's come in like various shapes and forms, to be honest. Like I've confronted it at times and called it out at times. Uh, at other times I've probably ignored it and just, you know, felt it's not the moment to sort of, you know, um, like take it on. Sometimes I haven't realized until afterwards, actually. Sometimes I've like reflected on something and think, God, mm. that felt a bit weird. 
you know there was one particular time when someone said something and i was like i didn't really kind of get it at the time and then i was like i think they were i think they were i think i think that was a bit of a you know a bit of a jibe there Mm. um but you know i don't really think i've ever been on the on the end of anything like properly horrific you know um and I've certainly never been like attacked physically or anything like that. And that, and that's the point is that I I am, but but you know I said to you this as well. Like, I wouldn't wear a kippah on my head. Uh, I'm not particularly religious, but I wouldn't wear a skull cap because I'm I, I don't want to be like that um, that visible. Mm. And I'm used to being cons- like inconspicuous. And and how does that make you feel? Do you feel as though you have to kind of, I guess, almost hide a part of your identity in order to kind of assimilate? Because that's kind of like how, as a black woman, I feel like I definitely resonate with that, not just in terms of being black, but even just down to like, for example, me wearing weaves or me wearing wigs is because I don't want the drama of someone asking me, oh, oh, your hair's all like, you know, all curly, can I touch it? And, you know, that kind of nonsense. So to save all of that nonsense, we wear stuff like weaves and we wear stuff like wigs and, you know, we we just, as much as we can, assimilate, even though it's not possible because we have brown skin. (laughs) That's interesting. So I didn't realise that. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. We've got we've got to a point where it's just the style now. But believe mm. me, I think a lot of people deep down, you know, if you were to ask a lot of black women, there is an element of that in terms of mm. you know, if I have to wear my afro out. How many questions am I going to get today? How many people are going to want to touch my hair? How many people are going to be, you know, just making weird jibes about it or whatever like i'll never forget one time i, I worked somewhere and my manager out and out asked me oh what's going on with your hair something that grows out of my head what do you mean what's going on with my hair and it's from that day i was like you know what i just i just can't be bothered so i wonder in your in your instance knowing that um you know you have this heritage behind you and you are very proud of it but you know, in a sense, you feel like you you have to hide it so that you don't have those many questions or draw attention to yourself. How does that make you feel? Well, it's interesting because I also ask myself what came first. You know, did my reluctance to be um, a visible Jew make me less observant as a Jew, or did my lack of observance make me more reluctant? Mm-hmm. Is it what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't, I, and I think it's a part of the, the same thing. And I, you know, I, I, I would say I'm not religious. Um, I'm not particularly observant, and um, I think that's that's a position that I've come to, you know, off my own volition. And then the extension of that is that, you know, I, I'm not, um, I, you know, I don't wear the, you know, something that an observant Jew would, which is like, you know, a head covering basically. I mean, there's all there's like greater degrees of that, but um, so I, I think I can't remember what your question was. Like, how does that make me feel that, yeah. uh, that if I? Um, because the reason why I ask that is because it annoys me yeah. that I can't just feel within myself one hundred percent comfortable to just be mm. 
out and out black or what we say in the, in the black communities we would love to just be blackety black black <laughs> because we'll be able to just be fully expressive about ourselves not how to diminish ourselves not how to tone ourselves down or water ourselves down or change our our our, our individualities in a way um just to fit in or not draw attention to ourselves or not be pigeonholed in a certain way we can never be 100 percent out and out blackety black black as we say because of various reasons people will say that we're too loud or we're too this or we're too that or they don't understand us or they're going to ask us oh what's going on with your hair today and da -da 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 -da. so you know we've kind of learned and to kind of i guess build a thick skin where we've decided okay i'm just going to kind of tone down myself a bit in order to kind of as you said not draw attention to myself too much and th that annoys me i wish i could just be out and out because that's one of the things that when i go to nigeria I appreciate it so much. I'm like, wow, right, for the first time, I'm not a minority. <laughs> Everyone yeah. here looks like me, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I don't have to tone myself down. So uh, do you feel like yeah. you're tone yourself down? Um, no, I don't. But I do notice that it makes me quite uncomfortable whenever I'm in a, like, I would say an overwhelmingly, like, non-Jewish environment. And I'm, like, the Jew. And um, I'll give you a great example of this, actually. <laughs> and this is like the, probably the, the extreme example. When I was younger, I would kept kosher, right? And I also went on a German exchange. And I went to visit my um, German exchange in Germany in the summer. And my mum told the person, the family, the really lovely German family taking, like looking after me who weren't Jewish, uh, that I was kosher. So they made sure that they went to there was a kosher butcher you could get kosher meat um, and she she made kosher food for me anyway the, on the last like day or last it was two weeks and the last like day there was a barbecue at one of my exchanges friends houses and um <laughs> and uh there were pork sausages and they said oh you're not gonna have any sausages and i said oh no i'm not gonna have any sausages because i'm vegetarian I didn't say kosher i said i'm vegetarian and one of them turns around, and in German, um, he's Jewish. Is it's quite um, it's quite brutal. It's it's Judah. He's a Jew, <laughs> which is oh. which is which is like for me much harder language than he's Jewish. He's an observant Jewish. Yeah. He's a Jew. He is uh, anyway. And then one of them turned around to me and said, "Oh, I didn't realize. Are you not angry with the Germans?" Oh my gosh. And I was like, um, well, look, and I think I said something like, you know, it was a long time ago, you know, you aren't responsible for the actions of your, you know, your forefathers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it was deeply uncomfortable to be yeah, sort of put on the spot like that by people who, by the way, have incredibly strong education now about the Holocaust and, you know, a, a large portion of their school curriculum is like geared to learning the mistakes of what happened. Nevertheless, to be sort of like the Jew, speaking on behalf of the Jews in that environment. And it happens actually, you know, I wouldn't say regularly, but whenever there's kind of a Jewish issue in a, in a you know, a non-Jewish environment, you know, often um, people have come to me for like, you know, advice and guidance which on, on some level is great you know that's dialogue on another level it's like am i uh, you know it's that it's that it's sort of 
Yeah, it's a spokesperson, but but you know, I, I think I'd always welcome it. I'd rather someone does ask me, really, as much as it's uncomfortable. Isn't it better that they are asking me than they're not and they're assuming? And, yeah, and as I long agree. as as long as I don't assume that I do, you know, I am the spokesperson, and I'm not, you know, one of a homogenous group. Because let me tell you, as as I'm sure you can attest, you know, there is no such thing. Like communities are complex, and you know, there's a really like um, famous joke about uh, a Jewish person um, who gets stranded on a desert island, and uh, he gets stranded on a desert island, and he builds two synagogues. And there's, he said, and then they come and find, they go, why did you build two synagogues? It's like, there's the one I go to and there's the one I don't go to. It's like, <laughs> it's like, there's got to be one that they oppose, you know? There's got to be like the one that there's there for them and the one, anyway, it's like as many Jews as you have, you have many more opinions. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And um, because there is that kind of, uh, I guess, school of thought in when people say, um, it's not it's not our job to kind of educate you, you know, as a Jewish person saying to other people or black people saying to other people, you know, it's not our job to educate. But me personally, I would rather someone ask me and ask me in good faith because they genuinely want to know um, than to kind of assume and go away and, 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 and not kind of, I guess, A, do the work or, or B, inform themselves. Don't get me but wrong. Also, it's not but, also, but also it's like, it's like, that's, you know, what an opportunity that is. If someone's coming to you and asking in good faith for advice and guidance, and you say, go and read a book. Mm. What lesson do they take from you as a person and from, you know, you as a representation of, uh, of you know, your community, if your advice is to go off and do your own work? No, it, it should be welcome. Thank you for, you know, wanting to learn and being up for this conversation, you know, I think I think it's just like take away the race stuff. I think it's just like you know if someone yeah, but if someone at work said to you, "I'd like to learn more about what you do," go and read a book. You wouldn't say that. You'd say, "Okay," well, hopefully you wouldn't. You'd say, "Okay," you know, this is what I do. Yeah, it's, you know, you take the racial dynamic out of it, and it's just it's kind of just good manners, really. I think also there's a fine line between you know someone asking in good faith. Um, you know, trying to get to know about a certain situation and people asking and not really, perhaps still in good faith, but also being ignorant of the fact that sometimes if you ask someone, it can trigger them. So mm. I, I, get, I get that. I get under, I, I do understand when people do say, you know, it's not our job to educate because it can be triggering, triggering to relive very painful situations. But at the same time, I think, as you said, there is an opportunity for dialogue and that shouldn't be pushed aside in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. And maybe it's maybe it's more um, just letting somebody know that you know it's not a yes no answer. Sometimes sometimes it's complex, and it's not a, you know there isn't just a kind of one hundred and one explainer on I don't know whatever the, the situation is. Yeah, no, I agree. There's actually there's actually something deeper. During during um or just after the George Floyd stuff, um, especially when the protests happened, I had a number of people, you know, old friends, old colleagues message me and say, Look, what has happened has actually reopened my eyes to the plight of the black community and what they go through. But I just don't know where to start. Like how do I educate myself? How do I 
you know, where do I begin in terms of just trying to understand or at least empathize? And, you know, I can imagine there are some people in our community who would have said, you know, it's not my job to educate you, go and read a book or whatever. But, you know, I at least started the dialogue and tried to explain or answer some questions, answer some questions that they had. And then I would say, if you do want to read more, this is a good place to start an article here or a book here. But I opened, I was open, I was, you know, welcoming of that dialogue, so to speak. I wasn't dismissive in, in any way. And I wouldn't be two years on. So, so yeah. Yeah, I suppose when it comes to sort of, um, you know, um, traumatic media um, narratives that just must have been like, you know, for everyone, it sort of dominated the the, the the international conversation for a long time. So I imagine for you, as I said, for me, like, you know, those those constant, I suppose, smaller scale reminders of, um, you know, my otherness, but that was kind of one big ongoing reminder, I guess. Yeah. Of... And it was, honestly, Dan, it was very traumatic, you know, having to kind of see, well, for anybody to see a human being you know have the life snuffed out of them like that but particularly because it was a racial element you know and um it's extremely traumatic for myself and other members of the black community to keep seeing it keep seeing the video keep talking about it people keep asking questions which like i said i wasn't averse to but you know there is a fine line between you know asking the question but also not being ignorant of the fact that this is very traumatic if that makes sense i think you have to kind of it's hard but you have to try and gauge it because for example mm. um you know there are people who are still alive who are survivors of the holocaust who want to talk about it and they want to have that dialogue and they want to educate the next generations or 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 or, or future generations which i think is amazing um but at the same time i can imagine there are some survivors of the holocaust who probably find it extremely difficult to talk about it and you have to respect that you know you have to respect that hundred percent. You've just reminded me actually of, of something else that was in the news this week. Um, you talk about police brutality. This stream of WhatsApp messages found uh, between police officers and Charing Cross, yeah. you know, had, you know, a, a whole lot of domestic violence uh, language and, you know, so-called banter, which clearly was, you know, horrific, um, horrific content. But a lot of it had a racial, like, dynamic to it and it, it just makes me sort of you know the one again one of the areas where I suppose um you know we diverge to some degree is I don't really fear being stopped by the police mm. in the same way that I imagine you must and that certainly you know your male friends must oh definitely definitely and, it, and it's funny because <laughs> when those text messages came out I'd be very surprised if there was any black person that was surprised that those text messages existed. And that's not to say that all police officers are bad because I'd like to think that, you know, most police officers are good, but, you know, it, it, there is no secret that there is some sort of institutional racism, institutional sexism within the Metropolitan Police. And that was just, you know, hard concrete evidence, the so-called proof or the smoking gun, if you will. And, um, but to go back to your point about, you know, being scared of the police or having that kind of distrust of the police, it is difficult and it's ingrained. And, you know, 
in a sense, going back to what you mentioned before about privilege, I have a privilege of being a black woman. And so therefore I don't, you know, near as much get stopped as some of my, you know, black friends or black male friends, I should say. Like one of them I was talking to recently, who was like, he's 38 and um, in all his life, he's been stopped like more than 50 times, more than 50 times. And also he said that, you know, He'd have to change his dress sense, don't wear baseball caps, don't wear this, don't wear that. And his mum will tell him, you know, don't wear baseball caps and, you know, don't drive like this or whatever. And it's just kind of like, would you say that to a woman in terms of, you know, don't wear that short skirt so you don't get raped and all that kind of stuff? You wouldn't. So what's the difference? Um, and it's and it's that kind of, um, I guess, situation where you do realise that, wow, like there is such a difference between, you know, our experience as black people with the police and other other communities and it's a shame because don't the police are there to serve all we all pay our taxes we all kind of contribute to the running society that we have in the uk but yet there are some of us who are treated differently you know by these huge public bodies and for no real reason because i mean what is the reason why a black male should be stopped i think it's eight times more than other people in this country or in this city specifically london it doesn't make any sense, but it happens, you know. It's a shame. And I just don't really know um, how that will ever change because there is such huge distrust between the black community and the police. Um, I just, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of, you know, repairing those relations. But then I think, you know, with this podcast, these are things that we can interview people and ask them about, you know, potential solutions, their experience, their you know expert opinions about this um having worked in the police force or worked in the black community you know these these are discussions to be had um i have to tell you you know my my hero growing up was a was a black man ian wright at the arsenal footballer (laughs) i love him so much i love him so much why did you like him so much because um, first of all, he was a phenomenal player. He was a phenomenal player, um, and I don't know. There was something about him that I just, I just really um, attracted me to him because he just he played. He always played with a smile. He always gave everything. He was a little bit. He had a little bit of like you wouldn't want to play against him. You really wanted him on your team. You know, he'd leave a stun in here and there. He'd do things that were something like he was, he was a proper genius footballer, like genius footballer. Um, But he'd also just be a little bit cheeky sometimes. And you could just see how much he was loved by the team. The team loved him. Mm. You know, they just responded so well. The fans loved him. And, yeah, I just thought everything about his personality that you could you could tell from the way he played, the way he carried himself was wonderful. Mm. And then what's so nice is that since he's um, sort of left playing and become you know um, a presenter, but also he you know he mentors. There was this lovely video, this lovely film about how he went into a prison um, and started to mentor this guy who recently he played at the weekend. They did a film about his relation that their relationship and how basically Ian Wright was his mentor and he left prison he sort of helped keep him on um on the straight and narrow um till he became a he became a player for Boreham Wood and Boreham Wood played at the weekend and beat Bournemouth mm-hmm. and they had this reunion where they had this interview sort of 13 years later 
where Ian Wright had gone into the prison and interviewed him in his cell and basically said, you know, you've got to get your life straightened out. You can do it. Mentored him through and now he's kind of in the FA Cup playing for playing for Boreham Wood and, and beating a, a championship side. And they had this like reunion. And you could tell this guy was like on the verge of tears just thinking about Ian Wright. Um, and there's this other, this other film he's done where he talks about uh, the relationship he had with his uh, teacher at school. Um, and he thought he was dead. And then they, oh, they yeah, find him and they, and, they, and they reunite and he's just in floods of tears. Yeah. And, he, you know, he clearly just had a really... And also his relationship with David Rowcastle, which I don't know if you... You know, if he's another player at Arsenal. They're on the same estate. And he's just someone who... I just, yeah, I just, I literally love him. <laughs> I, I love him so much. I think he's, I think he's just a wonderful, wonderful human. And he was like, it's just amazing when you have like a hero as a player who's someone through your youth who I posters on my wall. And as I, as I sort of change and have different views on the world, like, like that relationship with him in some ways has deepened. Um, because I've like noticed things about him or he's shown different qualities that I'm like, wow, you're still just, you know, absolute dude. So, um, Isn't it amazing how when you're younger, those kind of things, um, it's almost as though like your love for someone, it transcends race. You don't, you don't think about race as much when you're younger, obviously, because you're not even really aware of it. I certainly wasn't really aware of race until maybe, I don't know, when I was in maybe year four, year five. Um, but basically, when you look up at people when you're younger, race never really is a factor. If it is, it's at the very, very bottom, you know. Um, and 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 just similarly to you, one of my heroes growing up, and the reason why I got into journalism was a white lady, and this was Kate Thornton. Do you remember Kate Thornton? She was the mm. uh, presenter of X Factor. So I just used to look and be like, oh my God, she's got the most amazing job. She gets to meet all these people, hanging out with Simon Cowell, hanging out with singers. And so I, I went to Google her or, or ask Jeeves, whatever it was back then. And, um, <laughs> oh my God. and um, I know, right? I'm taking it you're back. Going, you're going back now. Yeah. I know. And, um, and I just looked her up and I saw that she was a journalist. And I was like, well, what is, what's journalism? And then I looked up journalism, what she did and how she was editor of Smash It's at 23 and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, hold on. Being a journalist sounds so much more or even deeper than just being a presenter. And it was from that day, I was like, right, I'm going to be a journalist. And I think I was about 14 or 15. So again, it wasn't someone I looked at and thought, oh, they have to be like, um, some. They, don't, they, they have to look like me. Obviously, it's a good thing when people do look like you because then you can see that it's possible. I mean, people like Charlene White, she mentored me for a while when I was younger. And she definitely played an instrumental part in terms of showing me that it is possible as a black woman to be in certain places there is definitely a space for that but the point i'm trying to make is that when you're very very young race never even plays a part and you just love someone for their achievements and what they bring to the table what they've done who they are and um yeah and i think that's very powerful i don't know if, if that's something that will ever be 100 percent um possible as an adult because there are so many kind of social social factors that come into play but i think there's a purity in that when you have that as a child or a young person where you don't even factor in race as much you know yeah i mean i was just always taught that you know because of the experience that jewish people had like you know, there was there was racism growing up. You know, there was there were. I remember hearing racist jokes 
and probably laughing them at times. But my dad was always really strict with me. You know, he said, you know, you're Jewish, you know, how would you feel if that joke was made about you? Mm. Um, and he just always made me realize that, yeah, racism was just basically the worst thing. Yeah. And, and so I think I learned to sort of recognize it and, and hopefully like not indulge in it, you know? Mm. No, I definitely get that. I definitely get that. So we've come to the end of our first episode of No Blacks, No Jews. This has been really good, actually. I feel like this was like a therapeutic just dump of everything that we've been feeling. (laughs) Since we've been like aware of our own communities or our own race or cultural backgrounds. But yeah, it's been really good. Um, I think going forward, uh, we have so much to talk about, so much to cover. We're definitely going to be um, talking about things that have happened in the news, contemporaneous stories. We're also going to be um, interviewing people who uh, have worked in certain places, like maybe the Metropolitan Police, or interviewing rabbis, or people who have written certain books. Just people with expertise that can really add to the dialogue of, you know, what it means to be Jewish in Britain, what it means to be Black in Britain, or just generally about race and racism in the UK. Thanks very much for listening. 